You're listening to Farm to Tabor. This time we've got Tamara Haspel. She is a journalist and oyster farmer based in Massachusetts. We met on Twitter where she does a lot of deep dives into nutrition science, which is something I don't touch with a 10-foot pole. So I love that she's out there doing the darn thing. She's got such a wealth of knowledge, she's going to talk about agribusiness, the mythology of homesteading, the oyster life cycle, and land tenure when your land is underwater and also your neighbors are super fancy because your farm is inside Cape Cod. She's going to start us off talking about agribusiness and respectability politics. Take it away, Tamar. Everything in agriculture is sort of funneled towards supporting this one particular way of doing things. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's real hard to break out. Yeah, it's, it's so rough because, you know, again, working in agriculture, I have seen so many people doing things so well. And they're usually the exception, and they're often kind of shunned for it because, like, they're weird. They're doing stuff weird. And I don't think that's something that most folks understand. And in some ways, this whole, like, save family farms thing is really just exaggerating agriculture's worst impulses. And no one realizes we're doing it. I, I absolutely agree. And I, I see it on, on both sides, on the sort of anti-ag people are saying... Save the family farm. Save the family farm. <laughs> and they don't understand yeah. what's going on. But then the big ag people are saying, we are family farms, mm-hmm. ignoring the fact that the gist of the pro- of the complaint really isn't about the familyness of it. It's mm-hmm. about all those other things. And it drives me f***ing nuts. Right. Yeah. There's. I think there's um, kind of this impression among non-farming folks that there's like a big canyon or a divide like you're either a family farm or you're corporate and you're like no the vast majority of what you're calling corporate farming is being done by individual family farms it might be because they're a franchise of like a poultry or swine grower but like they're using corporate practices and they're family owned and we can go into the history of why those decisions happened like why those family farms decided to become contractors you know and, and subcontractors for corporate farms But bottom line, they are the same people. And it's just really interesting mental gymnastics to kind of watch people like, you know, like love this, love the sinner, but hate the sin. But also they they think they're two different things. You're like, that's the same people. You've just been hating farmers. Yeah. Yeah, and they'll jump through all kinds of cognitive hoops to make sure that it's Monsanto they're blaming and not the guy who's actually riding the combine. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. Um, again, there are so many farms that I've run into over the course of work who really are doing things differently. They are breaking the mold. And again, um, because they're breaking the mold, they're shunned. And like agribusiness really has this, let's say agribusiness, but just like the, the good old boy way of doing things has this like mind grip over the rural areas. And I know, I know. Yeah, and the people who stick out of that and really kind of try and do things right are shunned by the other family farmers. And I feel like the people go to the farmer's market, so they think they know what's going on because they're like, well, I talked to my farmer. Well, either they were a reseller and they lied to you, um, they're a good old boy and they lied to you, or they're like the one in a million, like, <laughs> you know, actual small farmer who like maybe came in from a second career. They may or may not actually be self-supporting. The odds are they're not. They're working some other job. So people think they know what's going on because they go to the farmer's markets. And I just, oh my God, no. <laughs> I, 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 I think I wrote about that once because, yeah. it, I mean, even if you come out with me and see my farm, yeah. you have 
idea what the implications are, how it's different from other farms, whether right. I'm lying about, about things. Yeah. You, you just you have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And Rebecca Seidel um, at Case in My Cells just wrote about this within the last week or two, too. She's like, you have no idea what's going on. Like, even if you've been there, and, and I've definitely found this as a farm inspector. Number one, it took me a long time to kind of develop an eye for what normal is. And number two, like, I'm just there for one day. There's certain amounts of things that I can see. I can kind of look under the hood and pick some things up. But there's, I guarantee you, there's all kinds of hinky stuff going on there that I still won't know about. And right, so it's, right. re- oh, it just drives me crazy when folks think they go to a farmer's market so they know what's happening. You're <laughs> like, no. <laughs> well, it's, I have a friend who, who said, you know, people think that because they can write the grocery list, they can write. Mm-hmm. People think that because they can grow an herb garden, they can farm. And, and they, they, or because they eat, they can <laughs> understand this. Yeah. And it's so complicated, and it's yeah. so difficult, and it's so different for different crops in different parts of the world, and yeah. you know, different sizes, and and it's like you know, I eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff, and I'm terrified about <laughs> what I don't know. Yeah, well, I think the the thing that a lot of folks like have maybe I don't want to say don't don't understand but have really kind of been lied to about is the fact that agriculture is hard and it's a real job um we kind of have this history in our country of like people with absolutely no farming background uh because we're busy liquidating native peoples and taking away their land there's all this free land so you don't have to know to have a farm and to us that's normal like that's that's what our culture views as normal is a complete ignoramus can go try and farm and anybody who works in agriculture today knows that's not the case, but that's right. such a huge part of our history that non-farmers, I think, this whole like homesteading, self-sufficiency mindset really ties into that because farming is a job. Like you don't right. go, oh yeah, I'm an engineer. I build bridges for a living, like on my own property by myself. That makes no sense. You know, right. like it's, it's a larger right. scale endeavor and that's okay. We just have this cultural fiction where we don't understand that. And, you know, we also, we have, we have a commercial farm, but, we, you know, we have livestock and we raise chickens and pigs and grow things and we fish and we hunt and all that kind of stuff. We do a lot of the self-sufficiency stuff. And it's funny because yeah. people always think that, that we, we, we must do it for ideological reasons to, like, opt out of the system. <laughs> and it's like, no, we kind of do it because it's interesting, it's challenging, uh, the food is good, um, you know, it's right. like... So it and and I reckon like occasionally I write about pigs and one of the first things I say up front, okay, yeah, I raise pigs, but I also recognize that raising three pigs every other year in my backyard is way different from raising pigs for a living. Right. Yeah. And I think like kind of one of the scariest outgrowths of that that culture of homesteading that we kind of came into our nationhood with is when we think traditional, you know, on the land living, we think individual homestead. If you look at the grand scope of human history, like just individual homesteading has almost never happened. And every time it has, it's been a horrible disaster. And because you're so vulnerable. Yeah. And it only happens after like a major depopulation event, like after the Black Death, uh, after the Romans <laughs> conquered new territory and <laughs> like sold people into slavery. They're like, oh, now there's all this land. We'll give it away to, far- to, to war veterans. And so, I'm telling you, interdependence is where it's at. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, like, our, our idea of what traditional is is, number one, individualistic, which is a freak, you know, historically mm-hmm. speaking. And then number two, uh, traditional here is indigenous people doing, like, indigenous land management. It's not white people farming corn and, and wheat, you know. And so yeah. when we have an, an idea of, like, going back traditional ways, it's, 
like the colonizing way. And really, we should be thinking further back than that. That's kind of yeah. And I, I, that's kind of not. I don't know a lot about that, and I do focus on you know how ag has changed in the last hundred years, and right. and I don't history the history that goes on before. I mean, I always read your stuff about it, but it's not something that I am well schooled in. So I I keep my nose out of it. Right. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, the environments are so different across North America. It's a huge place and there are so many different nations out there. So you can't really make a lot of generalizations about it. But I just really wish that people, when they're thinking traditional back in the day, would think a little bit further back than like when my people arrived. Um, you know, so if we're talking about going back to tradition, if you if that's your normal, then you're going to think something very different than like, oh, we should all go back to homesteading. Um, yeah, just like the the whole thing with like homesteading is like kind of like the ideal super moral lifestyle. You're like, that's all stolen oh, land. Man. That's not that's moral. People who've never done it think that. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. So I kept track one year, uh, but one year when we were doing a lot of stuff, we had a, a big garden. We had chickens. I think we had, uh, we had chickens for eggs. I think we had turkeys. I believe we did pigs that year. We had, we had uh, honey, um, shot a deer, all kinds of things. Yeah. And I actually added up the approximate calories of what we yielded from each of that yeah. and to figure out what percent of my husband's and my caloric needs were met by these endeavors. Yeah. And it was like 30%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and when people say, oh, no, we're self-sufficient, we have a, re- we have a, a, a really big garden. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> let's do the math on that one. Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, there's, there's so much to say about, like, the homesteading as a cultural artifact and, like, a sentimental right. thing is really so much outweighs its practical value. And it just... That's it. You know. I'm wildly in favor of growing food at home. Yeah. I think it introduces kids to where food comes from. Um, it's a wholesome enterprise. Uh, you... You, you learn something, I think it's great. I, in fact, I'm constantly tweeting about whenever, like, they have these, these uh, uh, like, homeowners things that say you have to have lawns. I'm like, no, support full frontal gardening. Everybody should have gardens <laughs> in their front yard. Yeah. I, I tweet it out all the time when those things come, come up in the news. Yeah. I'm totally in favor of that. But there's a difference between doing that because, you know, it's an interesting constructive avocation yeah. and thinking that you understand how to feed people. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we have, you know, a quarter acre, like just a standard sized home lot. And so we have a garden, like a, a pretty big mm-hmm. one. Um, and I'm not under any delusions that we're like homesteading. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just grow some because you like it. It's nice. It kind of makes sense. Right. Um, so, you know, we have yeah. two acres in woods. And so, we, you know, we can do a fair amount. Yeah. Although we have crop for soil, so we can't grow anything. Oh man, we can grow a decent tomato, and that's about it. Yeah. But but we can have animals, Mm -hmm. and uh, and and of course we live on Cape Cod, so we 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 actually fish a lot. We catch a lot of fish. Yeah. Um, And uh, but still, it's a drop in the bucket. Although I will say that we probably meet about oh probably eighty percent of our protein needs between fishing, hunting, chickens, and, and right. pigs. Right, yeah. So we do get most of that. But, right. you know, that's all. Yeah, and I think, um, so back in the day, there was an incident where I did some field study back in college, and the professor that I was working with was an entomologist, and he actually had just lived in Tahiti, like, 
uh, we used to be Mormon, so I was at BYU, and he did his oh, Mor- really? yeah, he did his Mormon mission in Tahiti, and he spent like a quarter of it, so like six months on this like middle of nowhere boondocks island where everybody was homesteading, I guess, like because that's how you could live there, <laughs> you know, like there were no jobs. Um, I mean, there there were a few just like running the town council kind of jobs, like municipal jobs. Right, right, right. And that was it. And it was really interesting to kind of having had that really early on experience in life and then comparing how people talk about homesteading, you're like, okay, um, everybody who had a decent house on the island had a municipal job too. Um, There'd been some hurricane in the last five or 10 years and it's French Polynesia, so rather socialist. So they did get some rebuilds going on, um, Mm -hmm. like state-sponsored rebuilds. Um, Everybody did a little bit of farming or gardening. Everybody did a little bit of fishing and, uh, and there was still, I think, a lot of welfare going on. Mm-hmm. And and these were folks who knew how to farm. These were folks who right, knew how to right. fish. Like, they'd been doing it for thousands of years. They were very, very good at it. And you still can't maintain a modern standard of living, like, at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that was just no. so educational. Well, I think they should put us in charge. <laughs> no, just we just kind of need to talk about that because I think, just again, because of our... Uh, the way our country was born, we kind of have this impression that homesteading is supposed to work. And you're like, no, it doesn't just, just let it go. It's okay. Like, don't feel bad about that. Yeah. Like, I think we we have kind of like a lot of like shame about it in some weird ways that we're not doing it if we're not, because we kind of view that as the natural life and you're like, no, let it go, man. It doesn't work. It's okay. Yeah. I think I told you somebody was, was, uh, oh God, it was Tim Wise. You know, Tim Wise. I know the name. He wrote a book that's kind of silly. Um, He's so, you know, anything that smacks of industrial agriculture, he hates. And he's like, yeah, we should send the unemployed to work on labor-intensive farms. Oh, yes, that's the one. That way everyone has food and everyone has a job. That's the one. Dude, that work sucks. Yeah. Modern civilization has to work toward getting people out of doing that labor, not into doing that labor. Yeah. And, you know, he's talking about land redistribution, how well it works. And, and he goes on and he mentions homesteading. I'm like, don't tell Sarah. No. no. Well, and I think the thing that a lot of folks, again, don't understand is that agriculture is skilled labor. Like, it takes about three years for someone to even really get good at just, like, um, just grunt hand labor, like it's real work. So you can't just throw will, people at it. There is some of the, some labor and mm-hmm. you know, we have a, we do a lot of different jobs on yeah. our farm and we have, uh, when we have big jobs, we have a, a, a Brazilian crew that helps us out. Right. And there, a lot of the jobs that we do, you can get very good at after only doing them a few times. They're right. not difficult. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's other jobs, like, God forbid anyone wants me to learn how to pick strawberries, because <laughs> that would suck. Yeah. But, you know, putting oysters in bags, a lot mm-hmm. of that is just fucking grunt work. And right, you yeah. get better at it, you get faster at it, and we realize that, like, when we have, like, sometimes they, these students from Tufts come down and, and do a little internship on the farm, and I watch somebody who's never done something try and do it, yeah. and I take granted the fact that I've done it many times, <laughs> I'm better at it. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, no, it's, people just have no idea about what a farm is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think those, those crews are folks who have been doing a lot of manual labor. So that kind of accelerates their, their curve. And like, you know, I've done some jobs where you start out and it's, it's long. And then within a week or so you're doing it pretty quickly. Um, right. Yeah. There are some jobs like that, but there are like 
in the grand scheme of things on a farm, there aren't that many, <laughs> you know, a lot of things take, and that's just the grunt labor. There's also things like, okay, when do we plant? Like, when do we harvest? Who's in charge of knowing and that? And also, okay, who's, who's going to fix the planter? And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's machines that you have to keep running. And, yes. And it's like, I mean, so much of our farm, I'm watching my husband as we speak, go back and forth between the garage and the boat. He's getting our fishing boat. Uh, up and running today and I have no hope of doing this work but luckily (laughs) he has skills that I don't Right. Well, that's the thing that kind of like drives me a little bit nuts about when people talk about automation. They talk about automation like, okay, now we need fewer people. Now we're less reliant on labor. And I'm like, uh uh-uh, that's not how this works. What happens when you automate is your machines get more and more complex, which means you need a mechanic who's more and more skilled. So that means your labor, like your dependence on labor is getting much greater because now you have a much smaller pool of people with those skills to draw from and you have to keep them very happy or they'll leave because they're very employable. Right, but certainly <laughs> in the sense that you're paying less for labor. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, because you don't have people picking the fields. Right, right. But you're right, there, there is still that kind of dependence, although a lot of the farmers I know are pretty damn good with their tractors. Right, yeah. I mean, that's that's one the, class the of it. Deer, John Deere makes it really hard. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, I'm really thinking more like in manufacturing and kind of like the food processing side of things. Like, you definitely see oh, that yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So, like. Yeah, no, that's totally different. Yeah, so we talk but about. Go ahead. The combine is an amazing piece of machinery. Right. It's just, I mean, the first time I rode in one, <laughs> I was like, holy oh, f. Right. And I do so, feel powerful. I look at what it does, you know, okay, it starts with a plant, it separates the corn from the plant, it separates the kernels from the corn, Mm -hmm. it puts the corn in a bin, it gets the chaff out of it first, it Mm -hmm. cuts up the stalks, and it spreads them evenly on the field. Right. Which is, that's that's a lot of steps to happen in like one moving piece of equipment. And so like oysters are so not mechanized and the the big company that we work for just got just got one of the very first early sorting machines and ideally (laughs) what you want is you dump your oysters in one end and they come out cleaned and sorted on the other end Mm -hmm. but we're not at that stage first they go through one machine and they get cleaned and then uh then people have to pick out the dead ones because the machine does not have the capability to do that. Right. And take the live ones and put them, you know, the conveyor belt comes and there's a little space like for, for each oyster. You have to put each oyster in its space, face <laughs> down, and then it sorts it. Right. And so, and it feels like a huge improvement, but compared to a combine, it's like stone age. Right. Yeah. So I have I have so many questions that I want to ask right, you. Should oh. we start our like <laughs> actual conversation? We should talk about oysters. Um, yeah, we should. <laughs> so so tell us more about what you do, what the oyster growing process is like, how that fits into like your overall operation and everything. So oysters, um, the, the speed with which you can take an oyster from a pinhead to a market-sized oyster depends on where you are. It depends on your condition. Mm-hmm. And where we are, uh, where we have moderately cold water, um, and we have uh, we farm in a place that has a really big tide, so we get a big influx of nutrients twice mm-hmm. a day. Mm-hmm. Where we are, it takes a little over a year to two growing seasons to get oysters to market. So... 
what that means is we get oysters in June of year one, and then we'll start selling them in probably July of year two Mm -hmm. through December of year two. And hopefully by December, all the ones that are going to reach market size get to be market size. They're always some laggards. Yeah. So when so, you say when you say you get oysters, do you get them like from a nursery, basically? Like, yeah, we get them. Well, we actually. So it's always complicated, isn't it? <laughs> so our oysters come from a hatchery mm-hmm. in Maine, okay. and a guy named Bill Mook up there is in the business of breeding oysters, mm-hmm. and he breeds for uh, uh, uniform shape. He breeds for disease hardiness. He breeds for cold hardiness. He breeds for how fast they uh, they grow, and he also grows the oysters out, so he has experience on that type of business as well. And so he literally breeds oysters in a facility where he's got them there in the winter. And what what he has to do is in the winter when oysters are usually dormant because of the temperature, mm-hmm. he creates an artificial summer because it's temperature that makes oysters spawn. Right. And so in the middle of, you know, the main winter, he's got oysters believing that it's summer, <laughs> and he literally puts the males and the females in the same tank, mm-hmm. and they spawn, and the sperm and the egg find each other, and they turn into a larva. Right. So, so it, it's a larva for about, oh, 14 days or so, and then it, it turns into a tiny little readily identifiable bivalve. In fact, under the microscope, it looks like a, more like a clam than an oyster. It's a little oyster. It looks just like a shellfish. It's a yeah. little tiny shellfish. Now, have you ever wondered why <laughs> in the wild oysters are all clustered together, but when you get oysters in a restaurant, they're beautiful and pristine, and they don't look like they've been broken off a cluster? Tell Is us why. <laughs> so, here's how they do it. It's one of the most interesting things in oyster farming, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So, at that 14-day stage, what oysters do is they create a foot. They grow a foot, the way a clam has a foot. Yeah. And that foot, unlike with clams, they use it to cement themselves to the surface that they will spend the rest of their life on. So okay. oysters never move. Mm-hmm. Once they're once they're down on that rock or on that, you know, <laughs> deck, uh, under that dock piling or whatever it is, they never move. Yeah. And so, all right, so what do you do about that? So what they do is at the phase where that little sh- shellfish is going to cement itself, they put them in a big tank with ground-up oyster shells. Uh-huh. And each of those little guys finds itself a granule of oyster shell and cements itself to that granule. And of course, that granule then just basically gets absorbed by the shell. And yeah. so, and then by then, the oyster can't cement to anything else because it only gets to do it once. And so you have oysters then that do not cluster and you can grow them for, for the half-shell market that way. Uh-huh. So, now, when those oysters become, oh, the, the smallest you can buy really, I think is you know, one to two millimeters, very small. And we have bought them that small, but we found out that it makes more sense for us to buy them, uh, they go through one more step before we buy them. So we work with a much larger company, Cape Cod Oyster, and Cape Cod Oyster has facilities that we don't have, including an upweller. Now, an upweller Mm -hmm. is something that you put on, uh, it's like a big tank or a series of tanks that you put 
out on a dock in the water. Mm-hmm. And you put your seed in the upweller, and it pumps water through. Right. And two things happen when you do that. First, you get a lot of nutrients coming through to these little tiny oysters, and they grow quickly. Yeah. But the other thing you do is that the water that's pumping around moves the oysters around. They get tumbled against each other, which helps them grow uniformly. Because if they're all in a clump, the ones on the outside do well, the ones on the inside don't. They might grow into funny shapes, depending on what space is available to them. So the little tiny one to two millimeter oysters go in the upweller to become 10 millimeter oysters. Mm -hmm. And when they're about that size, about the size of a thumbnail, that's when we buy them. Aha. Uh-huh. So you get the big oyster seeds. We get the bigger oyster seeds. Yeah, we do. So, nice. And then, from then on, it's our job. Gotcha. Okay. So what do you do with them once you get these thumbnail-sized oysters? So we get the thumbnail-sized oysters. They come in uh, in these big these plastic boxes that are, that are used ubiquitously in, uh, in fishing and, and aquaculture. It's called fish toast seeds. They're mm-hmm. probably about three feet long and 18 inches wide, 18 inches deep. Yeah. And they'll fit about 100,000 oysters in a fish tote. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually not, probably about 50 now. Mm-hmm. And it, so we get these big totes, and what we have to do is try and figure out how many. We, we want to put about 500 oysters per bag. The bag is what goes out on the farm. And it's a, it's a, it's a stiff mesh bag mm-hmm. um, about oh, three feet by 18 inches. And it, it gets attached to the trays that we have out on our farm that hold the more mature oysters. Mm-hmm. And so we figure out, okay, what's 500 oysters? We start an assembly line. We have a container that holds pretty much that amount of oysters. We fill 500 bags, we close the bags um, with a a PVC slide that holds the two sides of the bags together. Mm -hmm. And once we have them all filled, then we have to get them out to the farm. Mm -hmm. And it's a logistics nightmare because you're (laughs) trying to get 500 bags. And this is what farming is. Mm -hmm. It's one logistics nightmare after another. It really is. So you're trying to get 500 bags oysters out in a boat that holds no more than 200 fighting a tide that won't let you get close enough to your farm to do it except that you know a small window as the water's coming out and a small window as the water's coming back right and then you put your boat in at one landing that has a dock but you can't pick oysters up at that landing because there's no way to get a truck down to the water. So there's another <laughs> landing where you can get a truck down to the water. So you have this crazy system where, okay, one team, and this is why we need a, a help for a couple of jobs during the year. Right. One team takes load one of the oysters to the, in the boat, to the dock, to take them out to the farm. You take them out to the farm and then that team comes back and meets the second team at the landing with the next load and usually it's like a two-day trip because you only have, you know, and and of course if there's bad weather or the tide is in the middle of the night, you can't do it. And um, so, so that's one of the big jobs of the year is getting seed out. And once the seed is out, um, it's pretty much self-sufficient until 
the end of the year when then we, we take it in. And sometimes it clumps up in the corners and we have to go through and knock them out of the corners. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we'll decide to move the seeds from the bags that they're in to bags when they're bigger oysters, they can go in bags that have bigger holes yeah. and a bigger mesh because you want to you want to have the maximum water flowing around. So sometimes we'll do that, but they're pretty good until then. And then yeah. the next big job comes, which is taking them all in for the winter. Right, yeah, and you tweeted about this, you know, what, oh two months back? Oh, my God, it's, it's, a, it's <laughs> brutal work, and you're doing it usually when it's just cold and windy and nasty and dangerous. Yeah. But we can't leave equipment and oysters out for the winter because uh, it's an intertidal harbor and ice can just shear away everything that you have out there. Right. So the oysters themselves would be okay with the winter. It's the equipment that's going to get destroyed by the ice. The the oysters would be okay if they stayed under the water. They would be mostly okay. Okay. Um, You can kill them if they, if in an intertidal area, because if they do freeze hard and then they get jostled around by uh, by wind or waves, they, they will die. But it takes a lot. An oyster can, can take a lot of, of abuse out there, but, but we have to bring everything in. And so we we load the bags back in the boat. We do the, the logistics nightmare in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we take them all to Cape Cod Oysters plant and we transfer them all into onion bags. Mm-hmm. We don't leave them in the stiff grow-out bags. We put them in onion bags, we palletize them, yeah. and then they go in a cooler for the winter. Right. And then the next big job is when you come back. Right. In spring. <laughs> right. Well, to, to clarify something for folks who don't, I guess, grow a lot of oysters. Um, so, so oysters, if I understand correctly, you know, they want to be submerged most of the time, but if they are above the tide line and the tide goes down and they're high and dry for a few hours, they're okay. Right. So you they're have a, perfectly fine. And yeah. in fact, most places that grow for the half, shell, I'm not going to say most, certainly a lot of places that grow for the half shell market, uh, grow in intertidal areas. There are right. some real advantages to that. One being that you can go out on land and, and you can work with the oysters when the water's out right. twice a day. Yeah. Um, but another one is that when oysters are out of the water, the equipment is also out of the water, and the sun gets a chance to kill, you know, biofowl. You get algae, yeah. you get seaweed, you get all kinds of things growing on the equipment, mm-hmm. and that impedes the water flow. And so when they're out of the water for a while, uh, the sun tends to, to kill that stuff. And, it, and it's interesting because where, where we farm... One side of our farm is lower than the other side, so the high mm-hmm. side is out of the water longer. And we see that the low side has more biofoul than the high side. The longer mm-hmm. it's out of the water, the less biofoul you get. Yeah. But also, the longer the longer it's out of the water, the slower the oysters grow because they only, of course, grow when they're in the water doing right. their bivalve thing. Yeah. So it's almost like backwards rice. So like the reason they grow rice in patties where it's submerged a lot of the time is like rice doesn't actually like that much, but the weeds hate it worse. And so it kills the weeds and it slows the rice down a little bit. So this kind of sounds like it's backwards rice. Yeah, that's that, an interesting comparison. Yeah, because there, there is this trade-off. Because if we could grow oysters quickly with equipment that came out of the water enough so we never had to deal with biofowl, that would be awesome. Yeah. But it's always a trade-off. Gotcha. The farming is always a trade-off. Yes. Yeah. Like that's that's always the thing is, and if you were to move like twenty miles north or south, that trade-off might you know look very different too. So it's very location dependent. Yes. Yes. So that's so crazy. Yeah, and everybody's got different conditions, and 
we talk to people who grow oysters down in the Chesapeake, and they have a completely different protocol. And the guys who are up in Nova Scotia, they do things completely differently, too. We have one very specific way of doing it, not just on Cape Cod, but in our harbor. And Mm -hmm. most people do some sort of variation of what we do. And the way we learned to do it is we went out there as total novices. We said, hmm who's the best guy out here? <laughs> and, and he was easy to spot, and so we just did what he did. <laughs> right. That's how a lot of farm learning happens. It's just, it's very peer-to-peer. Um, yeah. So I have a question for you that maybe a lot of people have, which is, like, if you want to start oyster farming, like, how do you, it's not like land where you're just like, hey, call a real estate agent and you get that plot. There's, like, complex, like, rental and permitting systems going on with coastal. Yeah. Like, tell us a little bit about that. So it varies tremendously place to place, but the hard part of oyster farming is finding a place where it's appropriate to grow oysters and that you can get a lease. Yes. Um, And in places like Cape Cod, it's complicated by the fact that, you know, this is a tourist destination. We Mm -hmm. have wealthy landowners Mm -hmm. uh, as our upland neighbors. Mm -hmm. People are... Um, profoundly ambivalent about oyster farming. Most people think it's great because they, you know, that it can remove nutrients, but it's also unsightly. It impedes navigation. Um, and, you know, if you have a, a house with an oyster farm in front of it, you know, at six in the morning, you could have Shaboni oystermen like me and my husband out there and kind of boat, you yeah. know, working. Yeah. And, God forbid. You know, I can understand why you don't want that. And we have a house on the water, too. We live yeah. on a, a lake, and, and, you know, you can't grow oysters here. But if you could, mm-hmm. I I would balk at having right. somebody else's farm right outside my front door like that. I totally get that. And so it's a difficult dance, and it's, it, and it's a different dance in different places. In more remote places, um, it's, it's a little bit easier. But there's still, you know, all kinds of controversy because, I mean, think about it. You're allocating a public resource for private use, mm-hmm. and you don't do that without careful consideration and probably lots of competing interests having something to say about it. Yep. Um, and, you know, recently, because here on Cape Cod, certainly, and in, in lots of coastal areas, there's a problem with nutrient pollution. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's runoff from agriculture. Here, it's mostly from septic systems, because we don't have sewerage in most of, of, of the Cape. Delicious. And so oysters are actually an inexpensive alternative compared to sewers if mm-hmm. we're going to clean up our estuaries. Mm-hmm. And so the the attitude has changed a little bit lately. That's great. Well, yeah, there's it's something I've seen is that um, rural and exurban landowners like really love being on septics because they're like, if sewers get built, then more people will live here. And the whole idea of moving out to the sticks is you get a nice place and then you slam the door behind you. Um, So like having only septics is a really good slam the door behind you move. And so they will fight tooth and nail to keep any actual sewerage from being built. So I actually think the problem here is a little bit different. It's that it, we have so many houses here, um, and sewering would be so expensive. Yeah, and the cost is obviously another big part of it. They don't want that either. Um, no, they do not want that. And I, I, I totally get that. Yep. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's the real challenge with um, 
with aquaculture in general, if you're doing it like right on shore, is that there are so many competing land uses. Like um, even when it's what you guys are doing, which is shellfish, which takes <clears throat> excuse me, which takes nutrients out of the water. It's not like fish farming where you're dumping poop into the water. Um, you know, you still have you know you need to to not take up the entire area so boats can get in and out. You've got people who are like. In terms of things that are unsightly, I don't think like networks of buoys across the water are the worst thing ever, but people still don't like it. And uh, yeah, and then like the noise of people working in it, there's just so many, there's so much competition for coastal land use and for coastal waters use. And something I'm seeing people like, all these people talking about seasteading, I'm like, if you could figure out how to actually grow productively offshore, um, that would be amazing, but engineering-wise, it's very difficult because the waves and everything destroy everything. <laughs> very difficult. It's expensive, it's difficult, it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I certainly wouldn't want to try it, although there are people who are working on these systems for finfish, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hope they succeed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll probably figure it out, but, uh, but right now, it's, it's not a business I would want to be in. Right, yeah, and there's... Again, at the same time, you see so many people with, like, all this interest in seasteading. And I think it's, like, mostly libertarian jabronis who just don't want to pay taxes. And they think if they <laughs> squat offshore, that's going to fix it. But they're not thinking, like, how do I continue to provide a living for myself and do something productive while I'm out here? It's strictly tax yeah, evasion. I, I'm not sure about <laughs> that because, I mean, it could be people who have tried or wanted to do things inshore but yeah. find the politics and the permitting to be prohibitive. They're like, yeah. okay, well, now what can I do? Yeah, well, the, the um, folks the folks calling it seasteading are definitely just tax evasion. The the people trying oh, to learn yeah, how to do yeah. the people trying That's to good. learn yeah the people trying to learn aquaculture like they're they're legit. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so where was I? I don't know. We were talking about offshore engineering or something. Oh yeah, <laughs> but no, I don't have much to say about that because and again, you know, what's interesting? One of the things that's interesting about farming is that by farming you don't become an expert in the thing. That in your farming area of expertise, or your farming thing you farm, you only become an expert at the little tiny segment that you do. And exactly. Like, I know people on Cape Cod who are who are bona fide experts. Yeah. Um, but most of the people who farm, you know, it's like when you have an illness mm-hmm. and and some kind of chronic illness, and you have the luxury of super specialization. You get to know everything about this illness that you have. Right. Um. And even though, you know, the doctor has all the degrees and things, mm-hmm. um, they have to be generalists. Yeah. And so, you know, and and it, it's like that. We get to be specialists. We yeah. get to understand how to grow oysters in a particular quantity with our particular labor force in our particular place. Yeah. And how to be profitable doing it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that, again, when we talk about, um, like in pop culture, when we talk about farmers, there's very much this like, farmers really know because they're doing it all the time. You're like, they know what they're doing very, very, very well. They know their routine. They know their equipment incredibly well. Um, Trying to extrapolate that out into like general markets and just like general technical for other locations, like they really don't. Like, very hard. Yeah. And it's most things, so many things aren't generalizable. And, you know, this is one of the things that that happens with agriculture that, that it's really, really useful if people have experience that you can build on. And one Mm -hmm. of the reasons we ended up with standardized crops like corn and soy and, and wheat and cotton is because. 
Um, those were the crops that there was the most demand for. Mm-hmm. Those were the things people got really good at growing. Mm-hmm. Those were the things that the land-grant universities put resources into improving the seed of. And if you're a farmer going in, you're kind of nuts not to grow that stuff. Exactly. Because it lowers risk. There are markets for it. And, of course, you know, there's there's Title I commodity support for it. Mm-hmm. Although there's Title I commodity support for all kinds of things that don't get grown very much also. Right. But, um, so, yeah, I mean... Farming is about risk reduction, mm-hmm. and one of the ways you do that is to do the things that other people are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's I don't, I don't say like oh they don't know everything as if like that's some kind of slur like nobody. No, no, knows. I, yeah. I, I totally understand what you mean. <laughs> right? I yeah, totally understand. They're the ultimate specialist. Yeah, it's like nobody knows everything. Like that's that's life, and that's okay. We just need to acknowledge that like nobody knows everything, um, and like they're. Ex- obviously yeah that's why we have a podcast um <laughs> no like you know i don't that's that was a big challenge with like starting to audit farms was especially at first you don't really know what you're looking at so you're just like okay we're gonna do our best here um and it was funny because farmers hated that so much because they're very expert at their particular thing um right but were they gonna pay enough money to have someone who knows their exact thing come out to make a special trip just for them no <laughs> right 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 so this is I what we get that. yeah so this is what we get um so yeah, like that's that's the nature of things is like I think in agriculture because everyone is such a specialist in their particular thing, having that specialist knowledge is like um it's really like the only thing and that's what what's really held up as this is what makes you good, this is what makes you smart. And if you don't know something for that particular absolute niche, it's like you're a fucking idiot. And and there's like they'll constantly talk shit to each other and like that's fine like you know like slap on the butt locker room thing that's fine but it gets really really vicious um to the point where people don't ask questions and they just kind of like quietly watch each other over shoulders and mm-hmm. you know it, it's kind of like a bunch of kids almost like cheating off each other's tests kind of thing and everybody's real furtive about it and we don't have a lot of actual talking through things and dialogue and like admitting that it's okay not to know things and and we like in where we are it's a very very insular community you know mm-hmm. there's a handful of people who were farming oysters in Barstow Harbor when, when we got here yeah. and we just got off the boat from Manhattan for crying out loud <laughs> and they're yeah. looking at us like who are these people yeah and and I totally got that and mm-hmm. and but you know they they saw that we worked really hard and they mm-hmm. saw that we were trying to do things right and yeah. they saw that that we were nice. There was there was one day where um so to get to our farm you have to go like so as the water goes out, you know, and leaves the farm dry, mm-hmm. there's there's a river that stays wet that goes in between like these two big patches of, of farms. Right. And if you're working with a pump, you keep your boat in the river and you keep your intake in the water and then you run a long hose onto the farm. Yeah. And uh, and there was a, a, a guy who was working with the pump and he was out in the boat. He was, you know, in the water by the boat wearing waders. Yeah. And we didn't realize that. And we came by, you know, pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And our wake almost swamped the Just guy. Just splash him. Oh. And and we were like, oh, and my husband <laughs> went over there to apologize. And he says, you know, I just want you to understand, I'm an idiot, not an asshole. <laughs> you know, we didn't do it on purpose. Right. And he totally, he, he understood that. And, and, 
and people, when they saw that we were trying to do things right, they, 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 you know, were were much warmer and and welcoming to us. And and I got nothing but good things to say about my neighbors out there who have helped us and who will answer questions and um and and you know people working together to try and figure out what the best way to do things is. Right. It took a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's. They've seen enough people come in with like, uh, you know, get a McMansion in a fancy house and just kind of like yell about stuff. Like they've seen that happen enough times that obviously you're going to have your guard up. But then you're like, oh, <laughs> you're actually working for a living. Like that sets people apart sometimes pretty quickly if they move to a rural area. So I think it does, and also giving people oysters tends to win them over. It does do that. It does do that. Amazing. People do like it. I've never understood why people would want to be a dentist because like nobody wants. To you but if you're an oyster farmer like everybody wants to be your friend okay yeah i used to work in the blueberry breeding program at university of florida and so like every spring we had to go pick our blueberry bushes clean like the research bushes Um, and everybody wanted to be your friend yes and they were really good because like they really spoiled those bushes and it was funny Mm because people always be like these are amazing are they organic and you're like no they're like university research test plot blueberries they're I don't know what's in these. That was good times. They were like uh, injecting sulfuric acid into their irrigation water because they like, blueberries like it a little bit acidic, but we're on a sandbar, so all the dirt is coral. So we had to throw a lot of acid in there to keep their roots right. And people were like, is it organic? Uh-uh. They have a sulfuric. Did you mention the sulfuric acid at that point? Yeah. Oh, no, we put sulfuric acid in the water. I was like, no, they're on a sulfuric acid IV. They are <laughs> super not organic. Ah, oh, good times. Yeah, so it, it really does help. It's good. Although people are definitely happy to see you with them at the beginning of blueberry season because by the end, everybody's right. had way too many. <laughs> yep. No, I, I, I get that. And, you know, we, my husband and I, we, we eat a lot of oysters, but we eat most of them in the time of the year when they're the best. Yeah. In, in the fall, they're really good. And I will say that Barnesville Harbor, and people will back me up on this, mm. I can't take credit for it because it's just in the water, yeah. but we grow world-class oysters. Mm. And if you come to Cape Cod in in November and get oysters out of Barnesville Harbor, they could be, like, the best on the planet. They're mm. really, really good. Fascinating. So, wow. Well. <laughs> Lucky us. Yeah, so I'll be making a trip up. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other than the oysters, November's not the best time to visit. Right, yeah. We've been down in the swamp so long that I would go out to California pretty frequently for work, and you just start to feel like a cotton ball. You're like, I'm drying out. This isn't right. Yeah. <laughs> I know, that's right. You're down there in the, in the humidity. Yeah. You're like, oh, my gills, they're dried out. This isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good times. Um, man, I have, I have just, I had so many questions. Um, I'm trying to think of what they were. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I have any answers, but. Goodness. Um, I feel like for this podcast, we just need to have some pictures because I feel like, you know, for, for most on land farms, we have a fairly good mental image. There's green stuff in, coming out of the dirt no. and, there's, and yeah. there's a tractor. Um, but for oyster what farms. What does it look like? Right. Yeah. What does it look like? So here's what it looks like. <laughs> we farm only on about an acre yeah so it's very small yeah and what you see on our acre is rows of wire that are about four feet by three feet Mm -hmm. and they're held off the seafloor by uh wire mesh legs yeah um because the whole point of this is you want to keep the oysters 
suspended in the water. Yeah, you don't want them stuck in mud. You don't uh, right, and and you want them to to get as much nutrient as possible because that's what makes them grow. So you want you know water on both sides, not just the top side of them. Okay. So although there are places where bottom planting, which is putting things on the bottom, is perfectly appropriate mm-hmm. for the, the the goal, but so what you see on our farm is four rows of trays uh, that are uh, each row of trays has uh, has two rows of trays so um, you know they're they're almost back to back although you can walk in between them yeah. so the long rows have 90 trays so it's 180 trays basically abutting they're not abutting there's like a foot in between them mm-hmm. and then you have a wide aisle wide aisle to get the boat down and then you have another row of 180 mm-hmm. 90 and 90 a foot mm-hmm. apart and so basically it's a really boring looking thing because you see <laughs> just rows of trays right and the trays themselves hold the oysters that are going to be sold this year so mm-hmm. right now they have last year's seed that yeah. we that lived in the cooler over the winter yeah and on top of those we put this year's seed mm-hmm. so that each tray can hold two of those stiff grow-out bags, and then we they, we hook them onto the trays with stainless steel clips. And each of the bags has floats in it. So it's got four floats. And so when the water goes out or the water comes in, uh, the, the bags are held above the tray level by about, oh, six inches. And they mm-hmm. also move around because so the floats mean they're not just sitting there dead on top of the tray. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things happen when you do that. First is that, um, you know, you get, you just get more water flow. But yeah. second is that, again, you're moving the oysters around and, and moving the oysters around is always a good thing because um, you get more uniform oysters that way and you get faster growth that way when they're not just in a heap. Um, And so so when the water comes in and the water goes out, those trays float above, but then at when they're obviously when the water's dry they they sit right on top of the trays. And sometimes like we'll lose a clip, either one of the the clips will break off or it'll rust through the thing on the tray that it's clipped to. Mm -hmm. And so we go out and see the the bags where one end is sticking up and we put a new clip on that or or we reattach that. And every year we use we lose a couple of bags because they'll come unclipped and and they'll float away to Portugal. Right. And then you're like, Um, oh no, more oysters in the wild. What will we do? <laughs> yeah, except they can't get out of the bag. So usually yeah. they get picked up, and we our most of our equipment is labeled with our 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 name and everything. But yeah. uh, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So um, so that's what it looks like. And the thing that I think people have a hard time getting their mind around is how closely we work with mm-hmm. the rhythm of the tide. Right. So we have to figure out when to go out there mm-hmm. because depending on where we want the boat to be. Mm-hmm. So our 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 land slopes up, and so the later we wait, yeah. the farther away from the farm we're going to be. Mm-hmm. So if we want to get the boat to, like, the east side of the farm, then we have to go at one time. But if we want to get it to the west side, which is the high side, we have to leave much earlier. Right. And the tide is different every day. It's a yeah. different depth. Every day it varies quite a bit. Yeah, well, and it, it, also, yeah. it also can vary by, like, pressure and things. 
Right. Well, tides are on a 25-hour cycle, I think. And so it's just a little bit off from the daily cycle. So the tide is always moving around and you're like, ugh. <laughs> right. And that- we, you know, we both have tide charts on our phones. And so the, <laughs> the tide is, is always about 45 minutes later than it was the day before. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, so we're always trying to figure out exactly when to put in the boat so that we get to the, to the farm at the right time. Because if you're too late and you have equipment that you're putting out, it means you have to walk the equipment over to the farm. And if you're too early, it means you have to wait for the water to go out if you're doing a job that that you need the water to be out for. Awesome. So, <laughs> and everything, every little thing is just an engineering challenge. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do you attach these grow-up bags to, to these trays? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, okay, well, we can do it with clips and we, we can do it with zip ties and you know, we did it that way at, at some point, but the clip does other things. And then how do you attach the clip to the bag? And how do you prevent the where it's, it's hooked onto the tray from rusting through? And how many years can you get out of your trays? And, right. you know, everything is just it, figuring out how to do a job optimally or how to design equipment optimally. It's yeah. very little has to do with actual oysters. Right. Yeah. It's, I think that's kind of one of the weirdest paradoxes about farming something is you spend most of your time fiddling around with not the thing, but like <laughs> the, like the infrastructure of the farm. Right. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and it's, I don't think it's what people's idea of farming usually is, but yeah. that's in my experience. That's right. Yeah, I feel like um, there are so many pictures of, you know, about farming that are like basically someone with their hands in the dirt. And you're like, how often does that, that's not what you're spending most of your time doing. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I ask some farmers, like, who do crop farming, Mm -hmm. you know, how often do you do, like, manual labor? And Mm -hmm. the answer for them is not very often. Mm -hmm. But the answer for us is all the time. Yeah, well, because what you're Um, doing is barely automated at all still. It is barely automated at all and farming oysters is like farming rocks mm-hmm. you just have to move <laughs> heavy things from place to place and with very little help yeah um so yeah it is it's and sometimes we roll our eyes because you know we're in our 50s and we're like how much longer can we keep doing this right. and it won't be that much longer but one of the reasons we got into it actually is because of the physical challenge because right. we thought at our age that was a good thing to to tackle Right. Stay nimble. Um, like, um, if the day you like hit the slippery rocks and can't stay upright anymore, you're like, okay, now it's time to retire. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know. Yeah. And you know, for, we've never had any really serious injury out there, but it can happen. And, and mm-hmm. you know, people do die out there and, yeah. uh, we are, we're super careful and, uh, and you know, we just, well, Beyond being careful, all you can do is sort of muddle through. Yep. Yep. That's the way of things. Um, question for you. So um, out, in the, out of the world of shellfish that you can farm, so oysters are one. There's also there's scallops and there's mollusks, or excuse me, muzzles. Muzzles, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, clams, too. Yeah, and clams. That's right. Oh, I always forget clams. It's really bad. Uh, <laughs> we actually do have some clams. We've grown clams. Um, yeah. How do they and compare? it's totally different. Yeah. So clams, um, where we grow, it used to be all clams. Yeah. And then uh, disease wiped mm. them out. Yeah. And, but there's still some clams out there. And when we bought 
we bought the the farm of somebody who got out of the business, mm-hmm. and there were clams planted on some of it. So we have some hard shell clams, quahogs, but we also have uh, steamers, soft shell clams, mm-hmm. and those are delicious, and they don't <laughs> travel well. So you know, most places in the country you don't often see steamers. Mm-hmm. Um, but and they're totally different because steamers you don't seed; mm-hmm. it's a wild set. Hmm. And so what you do is you put out nets to to catch the 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 set, the oh. little baby clams, mm-hmm. and then to protect them. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of years, uh, you take the the net off and and you use a pump. And you, mm-hmm. you pump up the steamers. And pumping up steamers is really fun because you pump and they float up and you grab them. And, then, mm-hmm. um, and, and we haven't gotten serious about that part of the business because we know nothing about it, really. Mm-hmm. But we, we have, we've done a little bit of steamers. And I think we're going to do a little bit more this year. I think we have a, we have a pretty good set in parts of the, part of the farm. So we'll see how it comes out. Yeah. But soft shell clams are delicious. Yeah. Well, they, down in Florida where we lived, um, kind of down by Tampa they have a big clam growing area by Cedar Key and uh something we found out so obviously like your shellfish they feed off of nutrients in the water like that that feeds algae and they eat the algae um so you have to hit a balance between clean water that's not going to get people sick when they eat those clams or oysters and then also like have enough nutrients to grow something so they have certain yeah, they have certain allotments where it's legal, like the water's clean enough. And then there are all these, like, illegal squatters growing your sewage outlets because the clams would get so fat. Um. <laughs> right, but, it, but the things that make the clams fat mm-hmm. are not the things that will do you harm. The right. things that make the clams fat are, like are diatoms. the things that grow off the nutrients. Yeah. Like, like the, the bacteria from the sewage, the mm-hmm. the the things that can hurt you mm-hmm. are not the things that the oysters eat, but there are the things that they ingest when they eat other things. Exactly. Yeah. So you get, and so yeah. you, you get can the, do that. Mm-hmm. And, and if you put oysters someplace like outside of sewage treatment plant, mm-hmm. you can absolutely grow oysters there, but then you have to relay them to a place mm-hmm. where uh, they can, they can, sort of they can purge themselves of all that stuff so you you grow them in that place and then you relay them to another place where they clean out yeah. and after a certain period of time then they're safe to eat but right. one of the problems is people poach them and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's public health risk yeah well my understanding was these guys were like basically squatters like this it was not legal to grow clams there so their yeah, yeah. their business <laughs> model was not entirely above board so they were all about like just just turn these clams around and uh <laughs> Yeah, so they yeah, they call them. Yeah, it's not as bad with things that you that you cook. Yeah, but it's it's very bad for things you eat raw. Yeah, well, and they called them the clam pirates, and I googled it one day and I regretted it. Oh, that's so um, funny. Yeah, <laughs> good times. Yeah, there are all kinds of colorful stories about shell fishermen. Yeah, I can see that. Oh man, um, muzzles. So my understanding is they grow out kind of like in further offshore waters, or did is that? Uh, uh, it depends. Um, they, you don't, you probably don't want an intertidal area mm-hmm. um, for mussels, and I don't grow them, but I've certainly seen them grown. And yeah. what a lot of people do is they hang ropes that have mussel fat on them yeah. um, from the undersides of of rafts and things. Mm-hmm. So they float, the gear floats on the surface, and the mussels hang down below. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's how I've seen them grown. Although I'm sure there are lots of ways to grow them, but I think that's how most of it. Most 
that happens. And yeah, that's, that's very different also. Right. And then scallops are weird because they don't actually like grab onto something. They actually move around. So farming right, them is... Right, they move around. So you have to grow <laughs> them in, in the, the ones I've seen are these lanterns. They call them lantern bags. Yeah. And uh, so you have this, this bag. It looks like, you know those pop-up laundry hampers? Yep. It looks like a pop-up laundry hamper, except it's narrower and taller. Yeah. And, and you run a long line, um, and then you clip these things. You attach them somehow to this line, and the scallops are in these lantern bags at like different at different levels. But again, this is something I don't do, so yeah. my expertise is, is nil. But that's how I've seen it. How I've seen it done. Right. Amazing. Yeah. So that's that's shellfish farming in a in a nutshell. That is shellfish farming in a nutshell. <laughs> in a, in an oyster shell. Yeah. Does anybody grow seaweed out in your area? Uh, people are looking at it. Um, hmm. It's. You know, uh, uh, Brent Smith, who runs, um, oh, the name's escaping me, the, the Symbol Island off the coast of Connecticut, uh, Green Wave, Green Wave. Yeah. He, he has pioneered some aquaculture that incorporates both shellfish and seaweed. And mm-hmm. he does really interesting stuff, and he's a great guy, too. Yeah. And, uh, but there is not right now, I think, uh, a lot of seaweed. I don't know of any, but there probably is some, but I definitely know farmers who are looking at it. One of the great things about seaweed mm-hmm. is that it's counter-cyclical to oysters. Yeah. So it grows in the winter, yeah. which has a couple of advantages, mm-hmm. one of which is that the people who own vacation homes here, summer homes, uh, aren't here in the winter, and so you oh. don't have as many competing interests going on. <laughs> yeah, but their septic systems are still leaking all the stuff they pooped out all summer. So that, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Although the, the, some of the, the, the we have pretty tight septic regulations here on Cape Cod, but still nutrients leak out. No way. To, no way around it. Yeah. That I know of. I think there are some sophisticated septic systems that prevent some of that, but we don't have that. Yeah. Good times. So that's that's really a, a fantastic point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, you know, it's the things that you think, you think that farming is this challenge of growing things, but there are so many ancillary challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like you said, that's what you spend so much of your time doing. That is the truth. Thanks so much to Tamar for coming to join us. She's got this fantastic wealth of knowledge. And if you have Twitter, I strongly recommend giving her a follow. There's a link to her Twitter and more in the episode notes. Talking about agriculture and the environment and climate and all that stuff can be super depressing, not gonna lie. So I love any chance to dig into all this good stuff that we're just learning how to do in the ocean because there are so many opportunities to do cool, regenerative stuff there. And I think it's gonna be really important as we go in the future. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next time.